You must remember this A kiss is just a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by Of all the podcasts in all the web You chose to listen to mine it again, Sam. The world will always welcome lovers as time goes by. Indeed. Hello, good afternoon, Marlo. Hello, welcome to another show with me, Sam Sethi. Yes, this is actually Sam's Play It Again. Uh, this is really a show I'm standing in for for Melissa today. Normally my show is on a Wednesday, but I've got one of my best friends in the world. Stuart Townsend's joining me today. It's a very special guest. He's coming f- live, I say, from Manchester. He's not in the studio with me. But Stu and I have known each other... <sighs> 20-odd years, I think. Could be could be about that sort of time. Let me give you a little background on Stu. Stu is a channel sales expert, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, how you build channel sales for your business. But Stuart and I met many, many years ago. Stuart and I met when I was working in London and Stu came down from Manchester. We'll be telling you the story of how we met, some of the crazy things we did. We, we had uh, a cinema that we booked. Can you believe it? We booked a cinema to go and see a film, invited 200 of our friends. We had drinks with Mark Zuckerberg. We met the Fonz. We had dinner with Scott McNeely in Blenheim Palace. And there are so many more stories we're going to tell you about. So stick with us. Stu, welcome, Welcome, how are you? Thank you. Good afternoon. Doing well from uh, the sunny north today. Oh, well, God. A little bit cooler today. It's not 35 degrees. Yeah, well, yesterday I stupidly, well, I say stupidly, I was luckily invited to go and see the launch of a band in central London, but the tickets that I had offered to me were months ago. It's a band called The Luck. Actually, I'm going to be doing a live uh, studio set with them later today at five o'clock on Welcome to the Weekend. So, yeah, I'm going to be, they'll be in the studio playing. So, yeah, I said to Jill, let's go up to London in the hottest day of the year ever uh, and sit in a bar upstairs in a Highbury pub with 150 people sweating ourselves to death. Uh, it wasn't pleasant, but they were really good. So, yeah, I'm glad it's much cooler today. Sounds like a perfect night out. Sounds like a normal night out in London. <laughs> Actually, can I tell you a quick story? So, you, you know my wife, Gillian. Yeah. So, I love going to these events in London. They call uh, How To Academies. And they've had some great speakers like Stephen Fry, um, Stephen Pinker, um, Tom Friedman. Um, so, people like Drew Ellis, Andy Evans, myself, we go to them, right? And they're great. Um, and then, <laughs> And then this problem occurred one night i said to jill do you want to go out in london tonight she's working up in london she said yeah, yeah sure i've got some tickets don't you worry in her mind i think she's got theater i think she's got dinner i think she's got something really nice and i turned around to her i said yeah where are we she said where are we going i said we're off to see professor hannah fry launch her book on algorithms is that okay <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite surprised I'm not divorced at this moment. I was going to say, you, you, you're doing pretty well not to be divorced at this moment. Most <laughs> definitely. Well, she told she, the people... She does have the patience of a saint. <laughs> yeah, she does. She was sat around the table at this board meeting, and when they said, she said, I have to go early, and they said, where are you going? She explained where she was going. They said, you really need to find a better partner. I was like, <laughs> okay. So last night I said, right, tickets to a pub, lovely, London, great, you know, band. 
and it just happened to be the hottest day of the year. Anyway, less about me, more about you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Keeping well. Keeping well. Trying to keep myself fit and healthy before I hit the big magic 50 mark in a couple of years' time. Oh, thanks. Yeah, cheers. Gone just way past. early. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, so let's start off with what you're doing today. What is it you do today? Uh, yeah, so basically I, I consult to... I wouldn't say a startup, some reasonably large companies uh, about building direct sales, building channel services for them. Um, and the model is basically around um, a SaaS company will get to a point where it's got so much in sales, it's got direct sales, it's got SDRs, it's got the process. SDRs? Sorry, sales development representatives. Okay, so thank you. First line of defense in terms of um, qualifying leads before it goes to a main sort of sales rep. Okay. And so I'll work with those companies because what they look at is let's go and do channel. That's great. It's dead simple. It's dead easy. Describe what channel means to people who don't know what the channel is, maybe. Yeah. So channel is where you sell through an indirect party. So in a normal sales organization, you'll have people sat there selling your products um, and you pay them. A, A channel model, an indirect model, is where you actually have a third party who would have a company that uh, would be a company. They employ their own people and they sell your products and other products. So think of it in Microsoft land, Office 365 predominantly gets sell, sold to companies by third parties, small vendors with 10 staff, thousands of staff in distributors. Um, and what they do is they take a portfolio of products and go out to their client base and keep on selling it. So it could be a customer service platform. It could be uh, an Office 365 type product or a Google product. Um, and they make money by selling those products. Um, and they train the staff, do the services and support. And so such. what's the benefit? I mean, um, why, not, why not start your own direct sales as opposed to, yeah. I, I think I know the answer, but I'd like you to tell me. Yeah. Why Why um, would you go channel as opposed to direct sales? And when would it be right to go the other way, I guess? So what tends to happen is most organizations, I've come across a few where they haven't done this, but they have a direct sales organization. But it gets to a point where you want to expand, you may want to go to a different geography. You may want to go and sell into Germany or Israel or southern Spain. Um, and you don't have the skills from a language aspect or a cultural aspect to go there. Or geographically, it's a face-to-face sale. You know, if you're going into to Israel, it's very much a relationship-based type sale. You can't do that from an office in London. Uh, been there and, and tried it. So it tends to be these either cultural or geographic boundaries that make you want to look at it. Or from a cash flow, you know that you get to a certain point and you keep hiring another direct salesperson, but they can only bring in so much revenue. Whereas if you bring in a partner, they may have 10 salespeople that can act on your behalf. Well, you've just got one direct salesperson. So there's multiple models around it, but essentially it's about scaling your company, scaling your revenue really quickly um, and breaking down any geography boundaries or cultural boundaries that you may have um, to go into different territories and markets. So companies are coming to you from other territories, other countries and saying, Stuart, can you help us set up in the UK? Yeah. Uh, some some have done that, and some have done it the other way, where okay. I'm actually um, I'm actually building out channel for them in the US, um, predominantly, <laughs> bizarrely enough, um, around that. So I've been building out some channel for um, South African company, but in the US, and then I've been building some channel for company based in the UK and building out their channel in the UK and looking to expand that into the US as well. Um, but I've been exploring different different aspects with different clients as well. Um, the I suppose 
bit like yourself there, Sam, asking those questions. The first sort of question is that they come and ask is, what is channel? I don't quite get it. I've employed a direct sales guy. I've given, we've had inbound inquiries for people who want to sell our products, but it's just not working. It's like, well, it's not working because you're treating them differently. You're not treating them as if they're part of your organization. You're treating them as a, somebody that's standoffish and you're just hoping they take some money and pay for it. So. Yeah, I've been working across different geographies in this, in what I'm doing now, just consulting around it, either acting as building a channel, acting as a channel partner, program manager for them, acting as an advisor or a mentor, diff- different capabilities depending on the sort of size of the customer. Okay. I mean, the two interviews I've done, one's with Tara Hunt, who's, who's amazing. She's um, in Canada. And one was with Marcus Couchkey, who's a, a sales expert for... Um, it's Sandler. It's a methodology of sales channels. And, and the summary of what they both said, whether it's from a marketing aspect or a sales aspect, is today people really want relationships. They don't want short-term attention. They don't want f- quick fix, money, quarterly returns. They want a longer, deeper relationship. So I guess what you were just saying is the reason that channel doesn't work is when people have them at arm's length as, just bring me the money, just bring me the money. Otherwise... Exactly, yeah. And it really annoys me. It frustrates me so much because, you know, if you were going to spend £100,000 hiring a direct salesperson on that OTE, you wouldn't then bring them in, sit them in a corner and say, I'm sorry, but you can't access all the internal systems and you can't look at this material and that's confidential and you can't do this and then expect them to deliver uh, revenue in their sales. It just wouldn't happen. They'd feel like they were a leper. Um, and that's what happens a lot of time. Companies look at the channel and go, well, what if they come and try and take our IP? Or what if they take our customers and they, we don't like it? It's like, well, well, that's why you have a contract. You have a contract that binds both parties together with mutual interest around, you know, if, if the channel partner does X, Y, Z, we can terminate. If the vendor does something, we can terminate. But it is, it's about you have to, a successful channel model works on relationships. Once those relationships are bedded in, it's a bit of a fire and forget model, really, because they just go out. Because you've got to think they're an organization that have got staff and salaries to pay, et cetera. And their vested interest is to make more money. So once they get a customer, you know, the, the vendor feels, oh, it's, you know, it's arm's length, it's away from me. But it's not because that customer is the vendor's customer and the partner's and the relationship builds, and that's how you can start to increase the sales there. And that's the only way it does work, is, is that pure relation. And that's the way it's always worked since, you know, since the start at Sun, doing channel stuff. It all, the most successful partner programs and activities we had were about building relationships. Yeah, and it works for the vendors like Sun, I was at Microsoft. You know, it works because you can't scale up as quickly um, to get a direct sales source and you don't always want a direct sales source you might want it for the enterprise or or for your i guess your one percent or two percent of your top clients maybe ten percent of your top clients you want to keep as your clients and deal with them directly but there is a great slew 80 percent plus of clients who you might want to have a relationship with but you can't invest in the relationship so you use the channel to build that relationship and then you it's a one-to-many model isn't it it is exactly, yeah, exactly. And it's, and, and it's been proven to work. You know, it's been around about a million years. Um, but it is a one-to-many. It's an aspect of, you know, if you've got a partner that knows that territory or that culture, they've already got a client base, just let them run with it. But give them the support to go and do that and own that relationship with them and make them feel part of the, the family. Uh, and like you say, big organizations, Sun, Microsoft, you know, Symantec, whoever it may be, can't scale at the pace that they want to scale 
to reach revenue points. And that's when they go and look at channel and look at how can we do this? Because otherwise, you know, the, the staffing levels and costs would be ridiculous. But, but play devil's advocate, can't we just use the internet? Can't you just use a website? Can't you just use a simple click here and buy? Read, read all my text, click here and buy. Isn't that the channel? Yeah, you can still do that. And that's called cloud stores. So big distributors have cloud stores where their partners or direct customers can come in and purchase like that. Um, but again, even small sales. So, um, you know, at Zendesk, we used to have the Velocity team. So it was anything below five seats, no matter who it was. And that was still somebody coming who wanted to spend maybe $100 per month would have an interaction with a human because they wanted to ask questions. They wanted to understand aspects. And it'd be limited time, but there's certain products or elements that you can just do a click and forget about it. But when you get into a stage where it's you want to buy 50 seats or $50,000 or $20,000 and such, you need an engagement there. You need a, a conversation. It's like going to book a holiday to Florida and spending $5,000 or $10,000. You don't want to just do that on the internet. You want to speak to somebody that's been to the hotel, knows what it's like, what's the weather like at that time, what was the plane like, is the food okay, what's the drinks, how, you know, it's, you've got those engagement questions going on that you wouldn't just go £10,000, right, okay, I'm, I'm going next year, great. Yeah, no, it's still that, yeah, There's still that human Unfortunately, I don't think, even when I'm dusting in, in the earth, I think there'll still be that need for a human interaction, whether it's AI bots or you know, clones. Um, there's still that interaction at a certain level that has to happen. Well, we all know that because uh, we, we're talking to each other over a video link here. Um, but if you're in the studio, the empathy level or connection level is much higher. It just is. Exactly. It always yeah. is. Every, anyone who's been on a Skype chat or a Zoom chat or, or done a video FaceTime, you know, with their children or their mum, you know, it doesn't have that same touch, does it? No, there's, there's always that disconnection there. You know, you can join Skype chats, 20 people on there or whatever it may be, um, and get some stuff done. But there's nothing better than getting on a plane, train or car and all being in the same room for half an hour or an hour, whatever it may be and actually really pan it out because you can look people in the eye, you can see the, the human, you know, the body behaviour, what's going on, the empathy is there, and you can just make things happen quicker. So um, how or why should people come to... Well, let's start off. What's the name of this company? How would you find you? How do we get in contact with you? Uh, so it's channel as a service, um, .com, that's simple. Um, and I'll send you the link afterwards. And the website needs doing again because I've just not had time to redo it because I've just been busy with clients. And then, Making uh, money all over the place. Um, and essentially, people have been contacting me from sort of previous roles through LinkedIn, um, through Clarity FM and some other places around that. And just wanting to understand, it all starts with a basic question is, I don't get this channel thing. We'll just have a call about that. Can you just explain it to me? And let's see if there's some activities there. And most of these companies are probably doing half a million to a million dollars in revenue a year. Some are doing 10 or 15 million. Depends what point they're at in the life cycle and maturity. Or some are um, transforming the business. You know, they're moving from an on-premise enterprise solution and building out a SaaS product and need to understand aspects around that. So I'm assisting a company, you know, companies around that side. So it, it's all quite varied. Um, but I'm just open to having those conversations and what companies' challenges are and if I can help them or not. And if I can't help them, it's not a problem. I, may, I can introduce them to other people through the, through the network. And if I can help them, let's have a coffee and a chat and just sort of see how that pans out. 
Okay. Some of the other things you're doing currently before we start to delve into how you got here. You're working with another friend of ours, Minaj, um, on Techcelerate, I believe. What is Techcelerate and, and what are you guys doing? I mean, it's a Manchester-based or northern-based uh, accelerator, maybe. Am I wrong? Right. Yeah. Tell me more. Uh, basically, we're changing the world in the northern okay. sector. <laughs> Easy steps. Um, no, so Techcelerate is basically bringing together consultants and people like themselves um, from different skill sets um, across not just the Northwest, but also the UK to go and work with companies who then become members and get access to us from time and services um, around that. And then we, we also, uh, predominantly I say we, but it's Minaj to be fair. Um, Minaj runs workshops and seminars about how to get funding. What about increasing sales? How to do marketing? Those sort of activities. And what we're trying to build, well, what, not what we are trying to build, Minaj has been building it sort of since 2006, is a more mature ecosystem in the Northwest, not just Manchester, um, around getting funding and accelerating that. Because what we're seeing in the Northwest now is the growth that we saw in London around 2007, which is there's not enough developers, there's not enough resources, salaries are increasing, it's all just going crazy. There's more and more people coming from London to live in Manchester, working at Media City and all the sort of agencies around that. But we're just seeing a whole explosion. And when that explosion comes, obviously you get companies that are setting up and entrepreneurs, but they're not getting the right guidance or advice. They don't know where to go for money. They don't know how to set up. They don't know how to get that initial investment. They don't know about EIS. They don't know about all these sort of things. So Techcelerate is there as, as a body to help govern and support that. And it does it through workshops and taking our old scenario of the open coffee where we first met um, into Manchester again and running that on a monthly basis. So you know, eight o'clock, a horrible time in the morning. We don't do that. We start at half eight, nine o'clock. Oh, the lying <laughs> jobs. I know, the more social time. Um, <laughs> meeting a coffee shop in Manchester, 20, 30 people, nobody knows each other. And it's about collaboration and finding aspects around that. Um, Okay, so you mentioned it. Let's let's talk about how we met then and then we'll work our way through because there's a couple of things. Obviously, um, one of the things is I, I helped Minoj start accelerate indirectly because i was the guy who came up to do the first event for him if you remember indeed yeah the, the, the story does go that i forgot to book a hotel room so i decided that a night out in manchester was a better idea uh at which point i think i fell asleep on a train to liverpool instead of coming back on a train to london but hey who knows a different time a yes. different time we were much younger then can Indeed. I just say I fell asleep on a train to Reading the other night? So, <laughs> <laughs> nothing plus a change from the many shows. Yeah. So look, we met at Open Coffee. What was Open Coffee? Yeah, gosh, that was 2007, wasn't it? Yeah. So Open Coffee. Uh, I'm trying to think where it was in London. I can picture where it was in. Oh, London. It's, it was the Waterstones. Fifth, fifth Waterstones. Floor, that's that was the it. one where we met, uh, yeah. and then we moved it to Hamlet above okay. the, the Starbucks at Hamleys. Yeah, yeah. Um, so open coffee was just that. It was come and have a coffee, come and meet random entrepreneurs, startups, tech people in London. Um, and to put it into context at the time, I was just changing my role at Sun and building out a startup program. Didn't know this world existed. Uh, and basically it was Minaj said, you have to come to open coffee, you have to come meet Sam, and then everything else would be dead simple. <laughs> and, I, and bizarrely enough, I met Minaj through a chap who did work at Sun that had done his... Um, uh, his master's or his, I can't remember, um, 
his MBA with him at, at the time. So my lodge was like trying to look for different angles and stuff. He'd just come and done his MBA and I'm like, I haven't even got this job yet. I don't even, I've got no idea what I'm doing. So he basically packed me on a train and we came down to London and come and met you. And it was like, right, okay. And then I can't remember the people you introduced me to because it was just like, speak to him, speak to him, go and chat to him. Go and, it's like, Mike, it's like, Jesus Christ, this is like, this is just mental. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a, like an underground club scene going on. I was just exposed to a world. It that was I didn't very know. much like that, actually. It was. I mean, it was. Uh, I just finished an interview, which is going to go live shortly uh, with Andy uh, from Huddle. Do you remember Andy? Yeah. yeah. And Andy said he met me at one of the open coffee mornings and it was Andy and Alistair said, having met me and strangely my advice to them was either go big or go home i don't know why i said that to them but that's what they took that became their company mantra and that's how they developed the company which is very nice of him to say that but it's very funny but in those days yeah it was there was michael acton smith who now runs calm alex chu who now runs calm Uh, you had you know judith clegg uh, I was out last night with Tiffany St. James, who runs the UK government websites. Oh, she God, was yeah. There. yeah. She was there. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on. Sol Klein. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, Sol, Sol was there, wasn't he? I always remember there was the high echelon of Robert Locke trying to get into his little parties yes. and things going on. <laughs> yes. Um, and then Hamani Way as well. Yeah. She was only about 15 or 16 at the time, just appeared doing this reporting thing. She was a like, little older than that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's just bizarre, a bizarre world that you know. Again, just to put it into context, so I've been working at Sutton, I've been selling to corporates, I've been wearing a shirt and tie and a, a poncy suit and stuff, and suddenly I come into this world of just so much energy and passion and enthusiasm and stuff, and everybody wanted to help you. Yeah. Whereas you know, my, my, my pre- well, not my previous role, the role I was in, it was it was cutthroat. It was like, sort it it out. Nobody's going to help you. Um, So it was amazing. And yeah, there was just like individual characters that were met throughout the time, like Susie from Huddle setting up drinks and such. Just characters around that that just all wanted to help and support each other and make sure everybody was successful and tell the truth. You know, if you thought something was bad, it wasn't a great idea. You said that. You didn't mince your words because it was like, this is somebody's livelihood. You know, if you try to do the next cat app, it's already been done. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. Yeah. And, and still they did. And still they did. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so Open Coffee, yeah. Open Coffee was an initiative that um, Sol Klein and I put together, which is uh, I invited in the days when they would listen to me. They don't now. In the days when they used to listen to me, all the VCs came to Home House and I said to them, they, they, their problem was they couldn't meet startups quick enough. And the problem was if they invited them in for a meeting... They had to give them coffee, sit them down, at least give them half yeah. an hour. <laughs> then it was like, oh, God, I really, your idea about this cat app is really useless. I've got to get rid of you, but now I've got 25 minutes that I've got to pretend to be interested. And so they said, let's organise something where we can do a casual drop-in and chat. And like any networking meeting, if you're boring, I'll walk off. And if you're interesting, I'll give you my card and invite you. And that's how the whole concept of Open Coffee came about. Yeah. Um, and it- and it did work so well, didn't it? I mean, it I did. just remember there were buzzing, there's enthusiasm going on there. And it was, it was like speed dating. Like, say, it wasn't, yes. it wasn't considered implied. It was like, that's a really great idea. I love it. Let's move ahead. Or not really my scene. I'm not into it. Thanks a lot. I'll, I'll go network and, yeah, good luck. See you later. Yeah. And, and the, the funny story is when we moved from Waterstones to 
I think it was above either a Selfridges next door to Hamley's. And we forgot to tell the Starbucks that we were going to come there. And there was about 150 people waiting outside the door uh, I don't know, at 10 o'clock in the morning, maybe earlier. And the security guard wouldn't let us in. He thought we were a flash mob about to raid the <laughs> shop. So he called the police to turn up, who then had to talk to me and a few others about why are you here and why are you, lots of you. And we explained what we were doing. And this poor barista upstairs, they'd only got one poor guy who'd only just started. <laughs> and he literally just thought he was going to have two grannies and one, you know, one little teenager maybe come in for a croissant. And 100, 150 people turn up and hit him. Yeah, no, they were good days, good days. But, but it was the time where you'd have open coffee, but you'd have loads of events at night time where you could do that. And you knew 100 to 200 people were going to turn up. Yeah. You, couldn't, you couldn't afford to get a venue that was only for 10 people in a camp. It just didn't happen because it was just, again, um, so much activity going on around that and different themes as well, you know, drinks, coffees, networking, technology updates, quick, you know, 60-second presentations, whatever it may be. Yeah, I can't remember what Simon Grice's event was called. He did, he did a mashup. Mash up events. Yeah. yeah. And then you yeah. had uh, Helen Keegan doing Swedish beers, and then you had Judith yeah. Clegg doing other things. And yeah, there was lots of good stuff going on. Pizza on rails, pizza on beer. Pizza, well, you pizza, started pizza, one then, didn't you? So, what, what you started an event. What was your event? Uh, so, I did the, the Sun Startup event um, at our offices in, in London. Um, so, we used to have that happening on a monthly basis. But also, um, I used to co-host a load of events there for, again, for the same problem. It was like trying to get a venue in London to cater 100 people that are presentation facilities and you could bring in catering was a challenge. Whereas we had the CBC in the centre of the city. And as long as I was there, I could give it away for free and it got people into the building. So I used to have the Sun Startup Essential um, programme going on. So we'd have a, like a monthly technology update and such for startups. But then we had Pizza on Rails in there, Twitter Fest, Facebook meetups, Facebook Garage was in there. I basically spent my life in London just with pizza and beer and <laughs> and tidying people's rubbish up yes. for like three nights a week. <laughs> there you go, future career for you if you need it. Yeah, um, yeah no, they were great. And it, it was a way of, I think one of the best ones that I came to is when you started getting Twitter involved. So Twitter directly started becoming a, a partner with you and talking about what they were doing. Yeah, so we had... Um, yeah, Twitter, Twitter events taking place monthly um, as well. And it caused some controversy because we had Facebook Garage as well at the same time. So, yeah, but hey-ho, that, that was a different story at the time. It was just just a venue. But, yeah, we were doing uh, – at the time, it was when Twitter was very much into its ecosystem and support its developer partner base. So, um, you know, every month developers would come in, talk about the latest product. Twitter would come in and talk about what's happening around the API – all those sort of great activities and that ecosystem just boomed. And that's why, um, you know, companies like Datasift morphed out of it um, as well. But it was just a time where Twitter was supportive and really great. Um, and we had an audience there. Literally, we had to turn people away because we we could only sort of fire in safety to up to 100 people. And we'd have 200 people try to get in the place um, around that. Um, and then, unfortunately, Twitter decided to change its, its rationale and thinking and think, yeah, developers aren't for us and third-party apps built on top of us aren't for us. We're just going to turn it all off. And it, to me, that was the worst thing they could ever do. They just it was wanted, just the worst mistake. Yeah, they wanted to own the ecosystem totally. Yeah, um, yeah. Strangely, I think they're going back full circle now and, and starting to talk about 
partnerships and developers and I don't think they're going to get them because people don't trust them but they are going back to that model it seems yeah and it was I mean it was, it was a great time and there was loads of applications and use cases around it but again it was always that if you're going to build something on a third party product and then go to market and build revenue on it you've got to remember that could be turned off tomorrow and that happened to a lot of people unless obviously they got bought well Facebook did exactly the same actually didn't they yeah yeah I mean lucky ones like TweetDeck fine acquired and some of the smaller ones but the rest were just left out um out hanging yeah you couldn't do anything well in some ways you, you you could argue that twitter were lucky because they could have been the cambridge analytica of their day oh yes <laughs> so you know if you if you think about it you know facebook was targeted because the api allowed developers to access the data there's nothing illegal about the way developers were accessing it it was part of the api it's just yeah. that Cambridge Analytica had worked out through this, I think, Russian Cambridge professor, if I remember the story, um, that you know they could ag- they could suck out enough data in order to then create a model that would allow them to influence. But nothing yeah. was illegal. It was just the way yeah. that the API worked. And I could imagine Twitter would have been targeted just the same had it still got an API. Yeah, I mean, even... Uh, when we were, you know, we had access to the full firehose at Datasift and we did $10, I think it was $10 credit for every account opened. And we'd come in the next day and suddenly a thousand accounts had opened. I'm like, What's, I don't quite get this. And you'd look into it and, you know, a thousand bots have opened up accounts, done a very rudimentary um, um, uh, request and then pulled $10 worth of data, then closed the account down. And done that a thousand times in like 30 minutes or an hour. And it's like, oh, we've just got to stop this. Well, you know, and Twitter will be under the same aspect. It's like, yeah, yeah bringing that data together, building an influencer base. And it's grey, it's not illegal, but it's it's not the best way of using that data. And it's, it's our data. Yeah. So, okay, so you were doing that and then then you and I started doing more things together. We, we, we came up with a crazy idea somehow in between. Um, this is radio, and of course you can't see, but we're both still wearing our flowery shirts. Uh, I like the one you've got on today, by the way, Stu. That's, yeah, it's pretty, pretty yeah, funky. I'll, I'll take a photo and we'll put it up later. But um, So we, we had, I don't know, did we have a, an individual partial for flowery shirts or did we meet Simon Green? I can't remember how it all worked. Anyway, um, we decided, to, go on. I've got a background to it, and this, ah, this is okay. I'm this glad is you my, have because I haven't. So this is my story. Um, so again, um, I was working at Sun. I was selling to finance. So if you went to Barclays or TSB, etc., you had to have a certain pinstripe, a certain tie, dimensions, etc. Or you couldn't get in the building. Simple as that. So at the time, I was working. Uh, I was doing business. Yeah, I was in business development in the MIA team. So around Solaris Ten, and working with ISVs and such. And essentially came up with this concept, found out about startups, went to open coffee, then built this bid internally to build myself a new role. It's like, great. So I get this role, set up startup essentials, I'm off, fantastic. Um, but the first company I went into was Last FM. Um, over oh, yes, in yeah. Old, old, old Street, and Old Street didn't really have anything there, it was just Last FM and, uh, and Moo, Moo.com. Um, so I went in there, and the guys are wearing shorts, sandals t-shirts you know everything but corporate suits and i came out of that we'd had a conversation the real like the concept what we were doing is discounted hardware fantastic so right okay let's let's have another conversation come back again um one little thing though if you come back ever again wearing a suit like that <laughs> we will not let you in it scares people because they think you're either 
finance or legal or something bad because yes, you're wearing a, a suit. tax man. <laughs> yeah, a suit is bad. I was like, right, okay, that's fine. Um, and at the time, I did have outside of work a partial interest in flower shirts, and you know, I was going through my thirties midlife crisis, and I was like, yeah, I like flower shirts. That's, that's great. So I said to my boss, um, I've just been told this today, and it goes against corporate policy. But I can't go and do this role and work with companies and come in in the suit and then get changed like Superman in the toilet and go out and something. <laughs> it's good. He's like, Stu, um, it was called Sanjay, my boss, Sanjay Sharma. He said, I do not care if you go out wearing shorts and t shirt or flowery shirts or do whatever. Just make sure we do what we're supposed to do, get the number, get the startups interested, work with them, do it in your own style. And from that day forward, I started wearing flowery shirts. Um, and the background of that was also um, when I used to go and speak and get invited to speak. It's amazing how suddenly a big corporate name gets you to invite to talk about stuff that you don't know about. Oh, yes. would get, oh yeah. <laughs> Hello. I would I, get started. I've, I've got a title on my card. Can I come in? Yes. Yeah. Of course you can come in and talk about this stuff that you don't know about. And I'd always get startups to talk rather than me. Um, but the main as- aspect was always at the end of the event, like if it was at minibar, you know, hundreds of people in a sweaty warehouse, it'd be like, right, okay, if you need to know any more about the program that I've just talked about, I'm the guy in the flowery shirt stood in the corner, which if you're wearing a black, you know, pinstripe suit and a, a tie and a shirt, you can't say that because I'm the guy in the suit. Like, I don't think so. Yeah. So that's why it's, it's just so it's your standout. I like it. Yeah. It was, it was my way of going you're not going to forget me in this shirt because you just think I'm an idiot. That's fine. But you'll be able to come and find me. And that's how it stood out of Flowery Shirt. That was it. It was just like, go and speak to Stu, Flowery Shirt, man. Uh, <laughs> and, it, and it worked, but it didn't, it wasn't in London HQ. I'd walk into finance, um, the financial services floor. It never went down very well. There was always a, a bit of a... <sighs> yeah, and I bet, bet they're all wearing their shirts now. Collars are <laughs> yeah. done. Ties are off. Yeah, they're all chilled now. Yeah, exactly. Um, so um, we, we, we mentioned at the top of the show, you and I <laughs> came up with some crazy ideas in our time. Um, one of the first ones, I think, was a, just a simple flowery tweet-up, we called it. <laughs> Whoever came up with that idea. I don't know if it was me, you, or the third member, tall man. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think I went to Simon Green, who, who, did, who did all my shirts, and we managed to... Get him to, I think, give us a bit of money. I can't remember now. But we certainly blagged, I think, downstairs at a hotel, a fancy hotel. Yeah, I think it was a cocktail bar or a tiki yes, bar, wasn't that it? Was it? In, yes. in a five-star hotel. Yeah, Because I remember the drinks were, like, super expensive, and I think Simon had said he'd buy the first cocktail for everybody. <laughs> oh, okay, Simon. Yeah. yeah just- yes, I do remember that well. I'll, I'll put some photos of that up later on, on <laughs> when your podcast goes live. Um and yes, that was good fun. Uh, and then I remember the film, Zuckerberg's film, The Social Network, was coming out. And I recall this. I was sat at home and I, I rang you and said, hey, I, should, we do, should we book a cinema to go and watch The Social Network with 200 friends? I remember that conversation so well because um, I was living in a place, well, I was living in Barraford, which is up the road from where I live now, in Lupton Drive, and I had my sort of makeshift office. And I was just sat there looking out the window, and you rang. And it was like quite a relaxed afternoon, wasn't too stressful. And I was like, so we've got to pay up front for 200 people to go and see a film at a cinema in London. This is just mental. <laughs> the craziest thing ever. But I think we can make it work. 
but this is just mental. Yes. And he was like, and then he came back to you, I think, and said, right, okay, let's just do it. Oh, you know, if, if we need to, I can put it through. Um, we can put it through on our cards and we'll work it out later. Yeah, and, and we did. We, I think yeah. we, we divvied it all up and put it on cards. And bits. It put it on cards and, and basically said, you get a ticket. I think it was a ticket, one drink and popcorn. Yeah. For like, so it was like 20 quid or something like that, I think, at the time. And it just, it was just nuts. When it, it's like, who'd think of... I was just like, how could you come up with this idea, Sam? <laughs> you know, rent a cinema in the centre of London when this film is coming out. It's going to be crazy. Who's well, going to come? Well, it's one of those moments where I thought, it's a film about being social. What's yeah. the best way of watching the film? Watch it with your mates it's, then. It was. But do you remember the night we're in the foyer and going, how do we actually verify if people have paid or not? And people <laughs> yeah. were coming up to us with money going, I owe you money for tickets. It's like... I just give up. We've just got some money. There's we a did. load of people. We, we just, oh, we did yeah. give up. <laughs> and, but the amazing thing was that cinema was absolutely full. It was yeah. busting. Yes. At the scenes, absolutely busting at the scenes. And if you remember that we did that in about four weeks, it wasn't like two months or something. It was actually, the film's coming out, it's going to premiere, we're going to hire the cinema the day after that, and we need to get people there. And it was like, Oh my God, just crazy. But it was so much fun though, wasn't it? I remember I was standing up before the film and saying, have a great time, really enjoy it, it's fab, thanks for coming, it's really good. And then sitting down going, oh, <laughs> over. Thank God I can have a pint of lager, I can have my popcorn. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's all normal. Yeah, no, and it was all of our friends. It genuinely was all of our friends. It was. It was, it was everybody that we knew from north or south were there that, that night and just... It was a special night, really, to me. Yeah. It was just one of those nights of getting everybody together that we knew across the scene that were really close friends and wanted to be there because, you know, they were friends of ours, not just because they wanted to tweet it out or put it on Facebook um, and enjoy that evening together. Um, but I just remember that foyer. It's just just hilarious because it started off quite normal. We tried to get a little area. Then it's like, just there's some tickets. Come on, let's go in. Let's just watch it. Let's get on with it. Well, the other p- problem I remember was they didn't clear the studio, uh, the cinema from the last lot. And they said that people couldn't come into the cinema until they've cleared out. So we literally yeah. had the world's smallest window to try and get <laughs> 200 people in and find them on a ticket machine. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, because if you remember as well, the, the film was automated, so it started at 7.30. There was no deviation. It was like, it will just come on at 7.30 and that's what's going to happen. So whatever you do, they've got to be in. You can chat all you like and it's starting then. It's like, like herding cats. It's like, come on, <laughs> come on, in, get in. No. It's good. So a couple of the other things that we did. Um, one was, I remember inviting you to come and meet the Fonds, oh, Henry yes. Winkler. So we, uh, it was an education night that my wife was organising, and uh, that was in Leicester Square as well. And it was, um, I can't remember, but because of your involvement with education, it seemed appropriate. And uh, we, we just decided to yeah. blag and have a photo with the Fonds, which we did. And then... To, do you recall uh, we also managed to blag a beer with Mark Zuckerberg? I do, I do. The, the Fonz was a special night because that was a red carpet night. Yes. We went to see that film. And I didn't want to do the thumb. And you were like, you want to do the thumb. <laughs> I was like, I can't do the thumb. It's just like, no, we can't do it. It's not fair. It? Yeah, no. Um, you get, you've got one chance in a lifetime know, to do the thumb like, with the Fonz. Oh, no. Uh, but he was really cool. And he yeah, was. the film was about, it was about education, wasn't it? Because um, yeah. I was quite heavily involved in that at the time. 
And then we were doing, uh, I can't actually if it was a Twitter event or a, a Facebook, it must have been a Facebook event, it can't have been Twitter, Mark wouldn't have come to that. Yeah. But we were doing a Facebook event, weren't we? Mark Zuckerberg was there. And again, you being the, uh, the more brasher, brasher of, uh, <laughs> of the two, was, let's get a picture of Mark, we've got our flowery shirts on, come on, arms round him, I'm like, do you think he'll like that? Well, it doesn't matter, does it? it's fine, come on, let's go and do it. <laughs> And he was really nice, wasn't he? He was, he was really nice. He was, he was really nice, dead pleasurable, wanted to have a quick chat and stuff, asked about this flowery tweet up and why the flowery shirts and what's going on and what's happening in the scene. And then literally, that pic- people still ask me now about that picture, is it real? Is that really him? It's like, yeah, he was, yeah. He was really cool about it. There's no, there no airs or graces. Um, I mean, he may be a different character now, but at the time, he was really pleasurable, really nice. Well, we're going to talk about Facebook in the last half hour, a little bit about what they're doing, because there's a couple of things that are um, very interesting, what they're doing, certainly with WhatsApp and some of the other uh, changes to Libra and bits. I just want to get your thoughts on those, but we'll do those later in the last half hour. Um, for those of you who've just joined us, I'm talking to a very good friend of mine, Stuart Townsend. We're having a little bit of play it again, Sam, where we're reminiscing a little bit on what happened in the past um i'm going to play a song for you now uh one of the songs you wanted and then when we come back we're going to talk about how we had dinner with scott mcneely at blenheim palace again crazy things that we did um (laughs) what's this song that you wanted it's from loose ends oh hanging on a string this um yeah this just basically takes me back to being a teenager with my cassette recorder recording the, the the charts and such but uh, yeah it's just one of those songs it's just timeless well enjoy that this is loose ends and i do remember them very well i was djing in london at the time when this lot came out uh, we'll catch you on the flip side uh in about three or four minutes time where we're going to be talking about a couple of other things that Stu got up to this time see you then Thank you. 
to Sam Sethi on Marlowe FM. He's got a face for radio. Indeed I have. Thank God you can't see it. That's all I can say. Um, welcome back. Uh, there you go. I, I love that track anyway. I love Loose Ends. So yeah, thank you for choosing that one. Yeah, it's one of my favourites. It's definitely <laughs> one of my favourite driving songs. Um, we were talking a little bit. I'm, I'm here... If those of you who have just joined us with Stuart Townsend, um, who's a channel sales expert, but Stuart and I have known each other for many, many years. Uh, we were just going back in time over the London scene. Um, before we cover what's going up in the Manchester scene, um, you were still at Sun and you kindly invited me to dinner at Blenheim Palace. I mean, I dine out on these things. So um, how did you manage to get dinner at Blenheim Palace? <coughs> It was um, so basically when I was at Sona, like I said earlier, create this role, create this program called Startup Essentials. And the idea was that Facebook and Google and these big startups had, weren't buying Sun hardware or Sun's operating system. So I was out there to try and influence that and change that. So we got Spotify uh, to buy storage offers, Last FM buying service offers, and you know, loads of companies and such. And what Scott saw was suddenly a change in the business and what was going on and was interested in this, as it was called at the time, the Web 2.0 phenomenon. Um, Basically, through Trude Norris Gray, who's the UK uh, general manager of some microsystems, reached out and said, Scott's coming to town. He wants to meet some startups. We're going to sort out a dinner at Blenheim Palace. Bring some of your mates. It was said a bit more articulate than that, but that's what it ended up being. (laughs) It was like... And you've right, gone okay. through A, B, C and D, and you got to S, and <laughs> finally someone said yes. And I think 
I think it was like 10 or 15 maximum. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a massive thing. It was more no, of a, it wasn't. A, pri- a, a private dinner, <clears throat> I would say. Yes. Um, so essentially I got, you know, there was you, a bunch, uh, uh, bunch of us all together, got there. And there was, it, was, it always makes me laugh because I was like nervous as hell. I've never met Scott in my life, you know, as the CEO of a company with 120 million people and, oh my God. So Trudy comes up and says, Scott's here, he's coming in now, are you ready? I'm like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing because I've got these guys coming for dinner, but I don't know what Scott's here to do. Is he going to present? She said, it's Scott. He's just going to do whatever Scott does. I literally came up to me and said, right, Stu, are you ready? I'm like, uh, yeah. What, do you want me to introduce you? He said, no, it's fine. I just walked in. And literally he had, I think, an hour and a half or something like that to talk, eat, and then he had to leave to go to Downing Street. He deferred, because <laughs> he was having such a good time, he deferred going to Downing Street by another hour. He was late going <laughs> to Downing Street. That's, there's two components to remember. One, him walking in and basically just going, I'm just going to get on with it. I don't, I'm not listening to you, Stuart. What, whoever you are, you're a minion. And he just walked in and he just went, bang. Hello, nice to meet you. What's going on? Tell me more. And, you know, you guys and, and ladies were asking him questions about how he set up the company and how it all went and such like that. And again, it was just an amazing time where it was like, it's just deferred got a downstreet for these companies here that, you know, none of them are generating massive amounts of revenue, can, you know, compared to what we were selling at some of the time. But he was just so engrossed by it. Um, and then Trudy had to drag him out because he was getting complained about, about being so late. And then I got feedback down the line that, that out of the trip to the UK that was over about five days or something, that was his most favourable time. That was oh, really? His, yeah. Everything else was obviously down the street and whatever happened there was, was all a bit dull and boring. But what he got back and the feedback he got and just talking about things, that was his fav, favourite event of the year. So oh, Brilliant. I'm glad we yeah. can help. So either the food was good or, or the company was good. Uh, yeah, my my comment to him that some microsystems is boring and over probably didn't help then. <laughs> but this is what he wanted to hear. He needed to understand that, that we were behind the curve. HP and Dell and those guys were like slam dunking it all over or the likes of Google and Facebook were building their own systems. So he needed to hear what startups say, which is the truth. There's, there's no airs or graces. So his last company, he formed a company called Way In, and I'm just on their website, and it seems Way In's already been acquired by another company. So he's doing well. Yeah. He's still going there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's still going. He's, he's some, I can't remember if he's a professional hockey player or nearly a professional hockey player because one of the aspects was he built a house in Silicon Valley with a full-size hockey pitch um, in his back garden so his okay. sons could train. Nice. You do. Um, but, yeah, he's kept on going still. He's still out there very energetic and sort of in the scene and uh, and, and never stopped. Yeah, he was the uh, first guy who publicly said, privacy is dead, get over it. Yeah. And I think he's right. I think yeah. we, we, we fight pri- to hold on to our privacy and, and, and in some ways that's right. But but the line, the creepy line of where our privacy is, you know, what people know about is, is now Pandora is out the box. It literally is. Oh, yeah, def- definitely is. And it's, you know, at that time... Some are sort of way ahead of the curve. The network is the computer, you know, thin sunray computing, all that sort of aspect. Just It was just ahead of its time. Uh, and like with Scott, he was a visionary around that. So, you know, your data's out there, get over it. Network is a computer, all those sort of things. It was ten, 10 years ahead. Yeah, he was because, I mean, yeah. obviously now we talk about cloud computing and the Internet of Things and 
edge microservices, you know, where pushing the pushing the computing to the edge, you know, the intelligence to the edge. That's basically what some microsystems talked about all those years ago. Exactly. Exactly. It was, uh, yeah, a good company. Yeah, Great. I just love to tell you, you, you know, of all the things, you know, you hosted me in a prison that night, though. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> I had the most eerie night's sleep. So we were, we were in <laughs> Oxford in the old prison, which was uh, converted to a modern-day hotel. And it's, it, I have to say, the, I don't know about other people, but the, the worst thing you could ever do to me would be to lock me up and jail me, right? <laughs> because... I have this innate fear that if I do something wrong, my parents must have put it into me, that that's the worst thing I could ever happen to me is to lose my freedom and my liberty. So I'm, I turn up with my wife, Jill, and we go there, and it's downstairs looks normal, and then we go upstairs, and it's literally the scene from Porridge, if you remember the TV programme, <laughs> with the corridors. But this time, instead of the gratings, you know, the railings and stuff, they've got all the railings are still up, but they've got carpeted down. But the prison cells are exactly the same. Except what they've done is they've converted two into one room. One prison cells your bathroom, and the other prison cells your bed. And literally, I think they've left the beds in from the prison. They were <laughs> rock hard. So not only was I at that moment when I clinked the door, it sounded like that horrible noise you hear on telly. I was like, the key is on the inside, isn't it? <laughs> it was. It was quite eerie, but amazing. <laughs> I was going to say, only the best, Sam. Only the best glamorous night, Sam. Thank you. Well, I have to say, that night at Blending Palace was amazing because you go into parts. I'd been to Blending Palace as a you know normal consumer, you know, walking around the gardens in the areas you're allowed. And that night, we were in the private dining rooms and the main hall, the whole shooting match. It was utterly amazing. So thank you for that. If I never said thank you before, thank you, thank you now. I'm sure no, it was a privilege. So um, we're going to be fast coming up to the news. Um, before we do, I want to touch on a couple of things. Uh, just give us a teaser. You you, uh, you worked for two companies. One was called Datasift and one was called Zendesk. What do they do? Yeah, so Datasift uh, at the time was one of the three companies globally that had a license to resell Twitter's Firehose. Uh, that then morphed into them actually having access to Facebook's, I'll say Firehose, but not return, because after I left. And then Zendesk was a customer services platform um, similar to Salesforce, Desk, Desk.com, those sort of things. Uh, and I started at Datasift when I think it was like 20 people there, mainly developers. I was sort of, I was like the cleaner-upper commercial guy <laughs> doing everything that wasn't development. Um, and then at Date, uh, Zendesk, it was less than 250 people at Zendesk when I joined there globally. It was getting ready for IPO um, around that. So two totally different companies, but learned so much because, um, you know, basically you've got to remember I've been working, I started my life selling steel, then I went to go and work for this big, massive IT firm, and then I went to work for startups. It was, yeah, interesting experiences. Which is why you can now be an expert in channel sales because you've been there, seen it, done it. Brilliant. Um, okay, we're going over to the news. And when we come back, we're also going to cover a little bit about what's going on in the news related to what Stuart's knowledge background is as well. So we'll be talking about the acquisition of Intel, or Apple's Intel acquisition of their mobile. What does that mean? We're talking a little bit about Libra. And there's a few other stories. Twitter still seems to be doing deals. They've got a new TV platform. But anyway, let's find out what's in the world of the news first. We'll be back shortly.
Go. Uh, welcome back, Stuart. How are you? 
I'm good. Good, thanks. Friday so that, afternoon, three o'clock. It's going well. That's That band there is the band that's coming in tonight. They're called The Luck. Oh, cool. They sound good. They're great. They're good. Absolutely brilliant. Are they going to be playing live as well? Yeah, their new album's out today called Ready to Run, and uh, we're, we're launching it here with them on the station. And, um, yes, yeah, so I... Typically Sam Sethi, I blag... I got them to come in. Yeah. <laughs> Normal, normal blagging. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. You know, any radio station in the world they could have gone to, and they're on my one. That's all I could say. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, yeah, so they're coming in today. They're going to be. We're going to be playing a few tracks from them. They're playing an acoustic set. So yeah, really excited about that. Right. Awesome live lounge. Yeah, and that's the <laughs> strange, stranger things. Watch this space. Who knows? <laughs> As you know. Um, we were just talking about your career when we were talking about different things. We, we touched on Datasift. Datasift, a uh, company out in Reading, um, was successfully started by a friend of ours, Nick Halstead. And Nick started it by, if I remember rightly, creating a little uh, JavaScript widget that would go on every website and you could click on it and it would, in effect, do a Facebook like, but it was the equivalent of a, 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 a tweet to indicate that you liked some content or you wanted to share it back to Twitter yeah so he started there was another company before that but then that morphed into TweetMeme um, and you're right Sam it was basically an upvote of I like that tweet um, and that then provided data back to say well actually that tweet's popular it's not so popular what's going on um, and Nick um, yeah then Nick had some conversations with Twitter and it was basically um, that then turned into Datasif which was when Twitter granted full access to the firehose <clears throat> Nick built, uh, built a platform that could mine that data in real time using a custom scripting language and it was just so powerful and amazing the, the, the problems we had was actually getting any work done because um, I know you mentioned about Twitter covering the Olympics uh, and we were talking about things like that it's like you know a big event a presidential election the Olympics coming up um, any activity it was like let's look at it in real time and see what's happening see how many tweets are going on um, I actually did my master's around the basic or um, premise of Twitter and psychological behavior which was in the in, remember in the days Sam when the web was the event to go to yep um, so I did my thesis looking at all the tweets from the web because I had access to them, uh, pulled them all out, and then analysed the behaviour of people that said they were there and people that said they were there and actually there. So if people, people that said they were there, there <laughs> would have been something like 250 million trillion people from all walks of, of the globe. Right. Um, and it was that FOMO. It was FOMO before there was FOMO, that fear of missing out and you know saying that you were there at a speaker um, around that. And that's that's what Datasift allowed us to do. It was just it was at the cusp before big data was being used as a term, and we had access to that firehose and built out you know financial models out of it, um, data um, morphing data together to look at sort of demographics and that sort of thing. It was just. An amazing company, and like I say, went from like 20 people to 100 to 200 people really quickly. And based out of um, a campus, University of Reading's campus. Yeah, no, I remember going to see Nick in the early days when he first started it. So yeah, only him was, and three people. Yeah, in a very sweaty office, yeah. which <laughs> with one fan. <laughs> yeah, and he, um, kept, he kept showing me stuff on the screen and going, what do you think, what do you think? And I was going, yeah. I don't know, I really don't know. And I think I just said, wow, it looks great, but I don't actually was thinking to my head, I have no idea. But again, one of those characters at the time that wouldn't say no and made things happen. 
and eventually, you know, one of the first companies over from Reading anyway to get investment from the US and get, you know, and get US investors coming over and putting serious Series A money into a company um, that was based in a, a campus in Reading was unheard of at the time. You know, it's pretty pretty much a norm now. But you know, Nick would not say no. And, and he, again, like Scott McNeely, a visionary, he saw things before they happened. And he built platforms and activities around that to, to, to do that. So, yeah, that was exciting times. And I built this little event called Big Data Week on the basis of that, which was in my 30 minutes of non-sleep time, <laughs> which was pulling together people that are interested in big data, a free event, you know, 200,000 people attending mini events across the globe, across one week. Because, um, again, it was just that passion, it was that that. You didn't have to do it, but at the time it was just exciting to do things like that, yeah. like the cinema event and such like. It was like, yeah, it just got crazy. Just let's. It was about, it was about people share, sharing knowledge without having to pay for it because they wanted to and they were keen and interested in it. Yeah, and I think I still think there's space for that to happen. It's just the ones that I'm going to now. Um, I won't mention who they are because that's unfair. Uh, a much more smaller roundtable event where they're char- trying to charge a lot of money to go to them and the value yeah. that you're getting back is not high as in it should be but they're pre-defining uh, the attendees just on the basis that you can afford to be there so the, a lot of the young people who've got really good insights and are hands-on with the tech such as AI or blockchain or IoT or Alexa skills or whatever aren't going to these events because they can't afford to pay £150 so you get yeah. You get a lot of people who are tire kickers who want to know about this stuff, but they can afford to pay it, but they have no value add. No, it's it's like, you know, going back to my Sundays, uh, the value add that we got was bringing the startups in, sitting them in the CBC uh, and getting them to present to talk about actually what's happening on the streets to our sales team or yeah. to our management team. Because yeah. they have no idea what is going on whatsoever. They could afford to pay the 150, 250, 300 quid or whatever it is to go and get a seat at the table but won't get a true story. Whereas with the, the startups and the entrepreneurs will be visionaries and talking about actually what is happening out there exactly. and how that could change. And that's sadly what I'm beginning to see a lot in, in, in the London scene that I'm just dipping myself back into. And I'm happily dipping it into. You know, it's something I really want to do again. Um, and I'm going up to London lots more but I'm struggling to find the places to go and do and find the buzz, the energy. Uh, it seems to be uh, corporatized or, or, you know, just a drinks night, which is great, but I really don't want to go for just a drinks night. Um, I went for one the other day, which was lovely. It was organized by my next week's guest, Tiffany St. James, who, you know, in her right, she's brilliant. She's the woman behind all of the social media and websites for the government but I didn't I didn't find a buzz or energy it was a lot of people just talking about what they used to do not not what they will do and um, yeah it seemed odd yeah but whereas we're seeing in Manchester <laughs> Leeds in the northwest in general um, I suppose in the sort of larger cities outside London you see you've seen that 2007 2010 sort of passion where it is about what's the future what's going on you know, there's still the challenges about getting developers and resources, um, but it's more about the sort of future use cases and scenarios in the future, you know, what's the next cap type of activity. Um, but there's definitely a lot more energy there rather than it being just drinks nights and, and such um, around that. I don't get to get to as many that 
as, as I liked to, but when I had my role, digital Lancashire role, I was doing them all the time around, and even around Lancashire, where you've got like, you know, Preston, Lancaster, you've Burnley, you've got these little hubs. Um, there's events going on every night that are either developer, commercial, technology related. But but again, just that nice buzz, that nice aspect is there, that passion's there. Yeah. How long it'll last, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's definitely there at the moment. Okay. And um, so you moved from DataSift into Zendesk, which is a very different company, I guess. Or was it? Is it, is it a similar company? What was it? It was, it was definitely a different company. Um, so when I moved from DataSift, I think there was around about 30 or 40 people there. And then I moved to Zendesk, which was around about 250 people globally. But it was still the same challenges. It wasn't like, you know, in corporate land where you get support and things. It was like literally, I've moved to this company that had built a customer services platform, mainly got SMB customers, wanted to grow and build a channel program to get mid-market enterprise, going to different territories, different cultures outside of um, the main European territories that it was covered out of the London office. But at the time when I joined, I think London office was around about 25, 30 people. Um, that was the senior leadership team, support, sales, sales development reps and such. But it had just such a buzz about it, just such a passion. Thankfully, the office was also opposite a pub. So when you finish work at 7 or 8 o'clock, you have to walk past the pub. You have to go in the pub because everybody's in their 20s and they dragged you in for a drink. Um, but the energy and the buzz behind that and go to San Francisco, go to the head office out there, um, again, was just a different time. It was like... We were getting ready for IPO. Everything was exciting. Everything was moving at 200 miles an hour. You just couldn't keep pace with things um, around that. So I was in there. I was brought in to build a channel program across Europe, get partners ready, get them ramping, get them building revenue and doing that from scratch. And that's part of why I'm what I'm doing now because the challenge was I was brought in expected to deliver revenue but there was no program no defined partners we didn't have a go-to-market plan with partners it was just take what we've done direct and find some partners and replicate it and you can't just do that in, in an indirect model you're always three to six months behind because by the time you find the partners you've then got to train them they've got to then go out and get sales and such um, but it's a company structure and the way it operated and the support you got internally was amazing it was you know marketing uh, business development sales support we all worked together to help each other it was it was a it was a family to be honest. yeah was, i mean yeah. i i can imagine that i had two companies where i had that same energy early days of microsoft i mean we were yeah. 20 25 of us in an upstairs building in winnish screaming you know we've got to go and do a presentation anyone got a cable anyone got a laptop you can lend me anyone got anything you know and it was like you know and, and it was all thrown together it, it, it was the original swan model on the surface we all looked calm and underneath yeah. everyone was kicking their legs no one knew what was going on at the time but it was great energy and netscape was the same so i can imagine that's the sort of company that's what startups once they start to hit that hockey stick are really great fun because the energy yeah. ball just really takes off doesn't yeah, it just keeps accelerating you sort of you then get the challenge of like hiring friends it's like we've got this money we have to go and hire people and that's like takes its own process and but people have to come in and have the right mentality i remember you know going for my interviews at zendesk and i got interviewed by every single one of the slt um team and what they wanted to find out is, was there a bag carrier, which is a normal sort of channel term, which is you just carry your bag around, you mop up sales from everybody else, you're a lazy person. Or 
where you actually go out and do there and, and you know work hard and actually get and go and do stuff and that's all really they wanted to know they were asking me loads of questions and stuff but they wanted to know are you a cultural fit will you fit in well and will you get a job done and will you be part of the family um and that's that's the key thing is as that like you say you hit that hockey growth and you've grown as a company like that you need those right people on board because once you get a couple that aren't doing that it starts to bring the passion the enthusiasm the a, bit like, a bit like Pogba at Man United for you <laughs> he did pretty well 10 minutes to go and a little dig at the, at the end that's pretty good yeah I'll <laughs> get it in you know. now, 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 um, now the show's at the end can't say much more to me now <laughs> Um, and it was a family at Data Sift as well. Um, it was just a smaller family. It was that same sort of thing of, you know, we all did 10 or 20 different jobs each and there was nothing, there was no such thing as, that's not my job. Um, and the same, you know, before I left Zendesk, it was, it was growing really quickly then. Um, but when I first started there, there was no such term as, that's not my job. If I've got to go and, I don't know, print out some documents because... Billy's not in the office or whatever. It's like, I'll print out the document. You know, there's no airs or graces. And that's what you need in a company that's sort of growing to that stage and going to an IPO is, is that family. Because that's, yeah. that's how it gets them there. Well, yeah, and, and, and I often say with startups, um, I was having a, a, a chat. I'll introduce him. I think the two of you got on very well. A guy called Marcus Kouchke, who does channel sales as well. Really nice guy. And... Um, we were talking about what kills startups, and I said to him, what kills startups is HR and process and corporates and the people with the corporate mindset. That, you know, often what happens is the CEO, um, I think I've said it many times before, the, the, the um, patron saint of entrepreneurs is the little red hen because she plants her little seeds and asks for help and no one helps her. Then it starts to grow and she's done all the work and then she asks for more help, but there's still no help. And then suddenly the crop's ready uh, and she's got a few people around her, but not many help. But as soon as she's got the nice warm loaf of bread, whoosh, everyone dives in on her. And that's just, for me, how it's like in startups. Yeah. What worries me is when I see startups, they sort of grow really well. And then they think what they have to do is replicate the corporate world. So then they go and get an HR from a corporate. And, well, guess what? You have to justify your job. So the HR person starts putting in processes and whole structures that may not be appropriate at the time. Maybe when there are, you know, several thousand people, you have to, or several hundred. But, but sometimes I feel they put it in, it treacles the, you know, the, the, the company. So it's suddenly you're walking through treacle. It's like harder and harder to get the company moving. Um, my, my yeah, my simple mantra is: um, at any company I've worked for or, or wherever I've been is, as soon as, as soon as somebody turns around to me and says, "I'm sorry, I can't help you. That's not my job. It's time to leave." Because that means they're bound by a HR strategy that's so tight that they have to hit their OKRs, they have to hit this. They're not thinking about the company as a whole. No. They're thinking about them as an individual. Yeah. So as soon as I hear those words, it's like it's time to go. It's time to leave because, like you say, they've then gone into that uh, entity of we need to be a sales force. So we have to be a sales force type model where we've got this type of HR policy and these activities going on. And it stifles creativity. Yeah. People are too scared to be creative or do anything out of the box or ask for forgiveness because it's like, no, we have to do this. Um, so the term and the in, initial human reaction is, sorry, that's not my job. I can't help you with that. And that just then means we're in a flat organisation where it's just fighting against each other constantly and nothing nothing will happen quickly. It'll just slow. Yeah. Uh, I, I pretty much am unemployable in the corporate world. 
Um, I, <laughs> um, I, and I, I call myself a maverick, uh, or others, should I say, call me a maverick. Uh, I, just, I just don't fit the straight jacket of a corporate world. I just know that. That's not my space. So... Yeah, I, I know that I can't go back there. I couldn't definitely go back. I could go back there contracting. I can go back there consulting. I couldn't go back there on a payroll and be bound by those pro. I'd just get really frustrated and really angry because I know there's so much that it could be done, but it's bound by a process. Um, and the trouble, well, not the trouble is, but what we see is like the startups, the entrepreneurs, those fast-paced growing companies take risks and make things happen and do it really quickly. Whereas those corporates are just bound by process and are years behind and then just go in and acquire a model because it's easier to do that than do internal R&D processes to build it themselves. Yeah, and that's always going to be, I think, yeah. So what, what companies at the moment, if any, do you, do you look at and go, oh, they're exciting? They're quite interesting. Anything at the moment? There's a company I'm just advising at the moment that I can't say who they are. (laughs) Um, That's not very useful. I know. (laughs) But basically, for me, I'm looking at the exciting companies around, I'll I'll use the word AI, machine learning, um, just because I love data. But what I don't want to talk about is like the Zendesk-type world where it's chatbots and things like that because they're boring and sin to me. It's more about speech models where um, you've got organizations building machine learning models, nearly humanistic-type tones of voice, and doing outbound sales calls. Yeah. Those sort of companies to me where you can, you know, from a, a sales development role, take those people out of the process and get them to more add more value up the chain, uh, or you can get these AI uh, models calling out and doing data qualification. So looking at data points and going, okay, is that listing correct? Which again, you may have hundreds of humans doing that um, around that. So those sort of AI and machine models where it's more of a humanistic type concept, not an online agent where it's just a chatbot going, going forward, I find really exciting. Um, and predominantly I look at those type of organizations that are sat in a sales environment or a channel environment because, again, it can just help accelerate those sort of components um, around that. So, And I still follow you know, quite a lot what's happening around sort of data and data organizations. But, again, that world has become very consolidated. You know, Tableau have been acquired. The BI tools are just BI tools. It's a bit like the world of CRM. Salesforce is a CRM. Pipedrive is a CRM. Everything is a CRM. It's all a little bit boring. You have to really sort of dig into either prop tech or fintech or health tech and look for those innovations and exciting things. So, um, Strange yeah. you should mention that. that you, you're the third person who's talked about uh, voice-enabled sales channels. Um, and it's strangely somebody I can't... Now I'm being you. Um, I can't tell you who they are, but I will after, but I can't tell you on the radio, <laughs> um, uh, who've asked me to build an Alexa skill to do voice sales channels. Yeah, because, again, it's one of those elements where if you look at a sales organization, you've got a large entity like Zendesk or Freshdesk or any of those sort of guys have got sales development reps. And all they're doing is they get an inbound inquiry, they ring up, they ask the same set of questions, it's qualification. It's a waste of their time. You know, really, they should be up, up. Um, you know, up the pipe and doing a higher sort of revenue type um, skill sets. So why not get machine modeling that can do that and just call out humanistic type voice, do that very quickly, look for the best time of day to call, all that sort of thing. 
um, and farm it out. And to me, I think that's that's a space from a sales aspect. It's definitely, I think, that's going to be yeah. really interesting over the next couple of years. If it means one less phone call from India every time I get a GoDaddy account telling me that they're a web developer who'd like to actually help me build a website, <laughs> which I politely always, I am polite, which is normally, thank you very much, but I'm a web developer, so yeah. I don't need your help. So if it stops those calls, maybe I'll be happy. But actually, just straight away, the reason I mentioned it, um, it was it, apart from the fact two people in the last two days have mentioned the same thing as well, is uh, Alexa uh, brought out on uh, Monday something called Game Skills, um, sorry, Skillflow, Skillflow Builder, which is uh, for games to allow you to build gaming structures faster but actually when i looked at it it's actually going to be really useful in the sales flow to actually be able to use so they've actually got a tool where a bit like a, a flow chart you can actually do go here if that's the answer go there if that's the answer do this and you can actually map it all out and then build a skill an alexa skill really quickly that's interesting because amazon have also have um the amazon connect which is basically Amazon Flex, so you can build a contact center in like an hour for 2,000 agents. So I'm sure they'll slip that sort of component into into that side of the business as well. Yeah, and and again, I was I was saying to the person that um, you know Amazon's uh, it's called ISP in skill purchasing, which means that you could, for example, s- develop something that says. Uh, I'll teach you, or it could be a sales training tool, as an example. I'll show you all the free stuff. And then we'll get to the bit here, just say, yes, I want to pay for the extra stuff. It goes against your Prime account because nearly everybody in the world has got a Prime account. So it's automatically paid, bang, and then it keeps going. So there's lots of stuff. I think voice, personally, is, is a really, really exciting space to be in. It, no, it's definitely you know one of the clients that I've worked with. Um, voice is key. And, you know, inbound sales calls for high-value items, like I said about the holiday to Florida or a nice watch, there's always that human voice aspect. You don't close that by just clicking a button. Um, and it's one of those areas that sort of, because of email and outbound marketing and such, voice is not seen as being major anymore, but it's still it's still a growing uh, growing platform and a growing use case. Look at any contact center report and you see that voice is growing year on year. Cool. Well, Stu, I'm afraid to say we've run out of time. Thank you very, very much for coming on the show. Thank you, Sam. That show was amazing. To listen again, please visit our website, marlofm.co.uk or visit our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology. And now you can subscribe on iTunes. Never miss a show again. See you next week. Same time, same place.